0: Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy Tino and Mike, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts. Today's episode revolves around a recent research paper written by Arizona State University professor Hendrik Bessembinder, in which he studied the long term wealth creation of the stock market. Of the 26,168 firms studied, almost 58% of them reduced shareholder wealth. So, this begs the question if you're more likely to lose money investing in the market, why are so many people so hot to get in the action? If you have any questions, comments, or would like us to discuss your financial situation on the show, email us at comments at onmarkets.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So Mike, you found this article on a website called MrTacoEscapes.com, which is just, a, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine how you got there, but maybe that's a story for another time. Uh, yeah, it
1: was, you know, you go down <laughs> one of those rabbit holes and that's where I wound up somehow.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So uh, wh- why don't you summarize the, the article and we'll open it <laughs> yeah. up.
1: So, so you, like you said, it's, it's about this guy, Hendrik Bessenbinder, who it sounds like a made up name. I don't know when he wrote the original paper, but he, uh, he updated it in 2020. And the premise was uh, he took all of the companies that were publicly traded from 1926 to 2019, which as you said were 26,168 companies, and found that of all of those companies, only 11,000 actually had a positive return for their shareholders. So only 42% of all those companies. So in other words, 57% of all publicly traded companies from 26 to 19 were losers. And to make it kind of crazier, Of the uh, 11,000 that actually made money for the shareholders, only 83 companies generated over 50% of all the positive gains. So if you think about it, it's literally three-tenths of 1% of all companies over 90 years was responsible for over 50% of the wealth creation in the stock market. How crazy is that? He goes on to say that the trend has actually become more concentrated over time. And over the last three years of the study, only five companies were responsible for 22% of all the wealth creation in the stock market. Tino, you, know, you know, you're always saying we get it you, know, you get it wrong more than you get it right in this business and, and I always thought that might have been a bit of an overstatement. But this really does sort of drive that point home, right? It's almost impossible to, to get it right a majority of the time.
2: Well, Mike, when you sent this around a couple of days ago, I got excited because this is a subject <laughs> that has been near and dear to my heart for a long time. I'll add to to this report. JP Morgan came out with a phenomenal white paper. I, th- I forgot. It was maybe three or four years ago talking about a very similar concept. And, and they basically took the Russell 3000, which is the largest 3000 companies. It's about 98% of the investable equity market. They came out with three under- unbelievable conclusions and it ties into exactly what you're saying is that basically 40% of all stocks in the index suffered a permanent 70% decline from peak value. So if you think about tech, biotech, all the hot companies today, it was actually worse than 70%. Two thirds of all stocks, this is the second key point, two thirds of all stocks underperformed versus the index and the absolute return for 40% of all stocks were negative. Third key point, this ties into exactly what your report just said. The return on the median stock since inception versus an investment in the index was minus 54%. So the median stock relative to a Russell 3000 index fund, you would have lost 54% relative to that index. But despite all of that, and I'm sure this is a key point of of the report that you came across, the index still had a phenomenal run from 1980 to 2014, increasing over 1800%, which is about 9% annually. It's crazy. That is crazy. So you hear numbers all the time.
0: And as we've talked about many times on this podcast, you don't really know who to trust, right? The the media hypes all kinds of different things, depending on the day, depending on what's hot, you know, what's in the headlines. You really don't know what's right and what's wrong. But when you look at a study like this, which is based theoretically, we're going to assume it's based on fact, it's hard to say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to jump into the market and make a ton of money. Because 58% of the time, you're losing. So why is it that the market has been able to create such wealth in such a short period of time for so many people? It's,
2: it's a bit of a paradox. Well, we just stated a paradox to a certain degree. Such a small percentage of the winners are driving the majority of the gains. It's a lot like why venture capital has made so much money over the, over the long run as an asset class. If I'm a venture capitalist and I have 10 investments, I'm pretty much sure that eight or nine of my investments are going to go to zero. That's the venture capital model. Now, again, take a step back. Venture capital meaning that I'm investing in companies that may not even have revenue yet. Okay, so very early stage. But all it takes is that one winner to really produce phenomenal returns. So it's not that much different in the equity market. You don't have to necessarily go out and find the next Amazon. You don't have to go out and find the next Google or whatever it may be. You can still invest in the market, quote unquote, the market, a diversified group of stocks or investments, and you can still achieve your goals because rather than having to try to find those one or two or three home runs, you invest in a bunch of stuff, knowing that a lot of that stuff is going to go to zero or maybe not to zero, but it's going to it's going to perform poorly over time. So the other thing that I found
1: interesting about this, and there's another chart here, it's the best performing stocks of the S&P over the last 30 years from, from 1990. To, uh, to 2020. And in the top 10 is Monster Beverage, Jack Henry and Associates, Cerner Corp, Ross Stores, Kansas City Southern, Altrier Group. You know, we talk to clients all day long and all they want to talk about is Apple, Google, yeah, Amazon, admittedly. And that is obviously number one. But, but some of these other companies are, while you've heard of them, I don't think those are the companies that come to mind as being top performers of the S&P over 30 years, unless I'm wrong. Maybe I just don't know enough about it.
2: Uh, it's usually the ones that people don't talk too much about. Here's a, here's a great statistic I saw the other day from uh, Charlie Bellello's blog, who's a very well-known and very prominent financial blogger. He showed a chart since 2004, Google IPO'd in 2004. Okay, so he showed the phenomenal return that Google has, ret- has, has returned investors since 2004. And he compared that to another stock on the same chart, which was multiples higher than Google at the same time, IPO'd at the same time. That was Domino's Pizza. Yeah. How does that really make
1: sense to the average person? I don't think it does.
0: To me, this outlines the need for a good asset manager and a good wealth manager, right? Because how does the average person even know where to find some of these companies? I
2: mean, some, I, I read this list. I, I've never heard of a bunch of these companies. Well, I think the difference here is that what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to find the next home run, or are you trying to achieve a financial goal, which is I don't know, whatever it may be, you know, growing, you're growing your capital in retirement. Because those, those are two very different objectives. Here's a, You can make money picking stocks. I, there's a lot of people, a lot of pundits out there that say, you can't do it. It is 100% possible to do. It's just really, really hard. It's a lot of work. The best stock pickers that I've met in my career, they follow at most six to eight stocks with on their radar, maybe another eight or 10 on kind of that tier two level where they're watching, but they haven't really done the analysis on. When one of their companies reports earnings, they're generally speaking, working for 15 to 20 hours, updating their models, getting everything set to make sure that they know every little detail about that company going forward. It's a tremendous amount of work, but it can make you money. I don't think a lot of people, frankly, that are, that are retiring or, or about to retire need to worry about that. What you can do is you can invest for a different reasons, invest for growth. I don't necessarily need to go find that next Amazon, like we said earlier. Let's create a diversified holding of stocks, put some thought behind that, and that's going to get me to my goal as long as I can be patient, which is generally speaking the, where most people fall apart because they, you know, nobody likes to be patient.
1: I think what Remy's saying though, Tino, is like, if you look at this list, like just pick a random one, right? Number seven over the last 30 years, the S&P performers, Kansas City Southern Railroad. They had a uh, what, 24.8% annual return for 30 years. Who in the name of God would have invested in a, in a maybe it's not a railroad? Maybe they have all kinds of other businesses. I don't even know, but I certainly would not have chosen a railroad thirty years ago as something that I would anticipate would be a top ten performer of the S and P. No doubt. Yeah. How do you know that? How do you how do you get that? I mean, that's I mean, a good that,
0: example too, Mike, because of of all the things on here, that that one in particular seems like it. It should be a a
2: declining industry, right? It was a declining industry. I was actually, um, it's funny you mentioned railroads. I was a little bit involved with this sector maybe 15 years ago. It was a terrible sector for the longest time. You're right. 30 years ago, railroads were fragmented. They were terrible businesses, high operating costs. And you know what happened? They started consolidating. They started focusing on profitability and not revenue. They were doing all these things that would, would make them a very attractive sector to compete in. And they got their act together, to be blunt. As a result, they were able to produce some phenomenal returns. But to be that analyst or that stock picker who could have anticipated that before it happened, it's really tough to do. You know, it's, it's like anything else. Like how do you, how did, how did, um, this is where my sports references go to, go to hell. That, uh, who was that Boston Red Sox guy who had batted 400 forever? Ted Williams. Ted Williams, thank you how do you consistently hit something higher than everybody else? You're just really, really good relative to the rest of the competition. There just aren't that many people that we always talk about. There are only so many Michael Jordans and Tom Brady's in the world. I'm, talking about.
0: I'm looking at the top 30 of those top 30. What's the most shocking to you? Let's put the railroads one aside. We already talked about that, but pick one that, that is the most shocking to you. I'll tell you mine, which is number two, monster beverage. Oh, I know. You kidding me? monster beverage just like the red bull alternative right monster energy drink
1: yeah listen i wouldn't have picked them ahead of red bull never mind number two in the s&p
2: what surprises me the most is without question best buy yeah that's a good one too i didn't even know
0: best buy was still in business (laughs) legit i thought they went out of business i didn't even know yeah i thought they were like one of those companies that were that went bankrupt so I've gone, I've gone four times now, the first three times they were temporarily closed and the last time they were permanent, like last.
2: Best Buy is a company and I don't, we're not, we're not giving stock advice here. Let's be clear. But Best Buy is one of those companies where I just, I look at how the business model is set up. They're locked into these incredibly long-term leases. They're the anchor tenant in most of the locations. They've got these huge fixed costs, labor costs, all of this. And now you're going to sit there and tell me you're going to compete in the online world, I, I, it just, it's staggering to me to see that number up there. Yeah, you're right, Mike. A couple of years ago, I mean, they cleaned house back in, what was it? The mid-90s, mid to late 90s. But today, it's shocking.
1: Well, that's the other part of this, right? I mean, some of these, some of these companies were super successful. This is over 30 years. So some of these companies probably were, were so, had so outperformed some of the other companies in this list maybe a few years ago. You know, Ross stores, that's probably the one that shocks me the most. Ross stores? I've never even been in a Ross store.
2: Oh, I could see Ross. Too. Well, think about Ross though. I mean, think you're not the right demographic. Yeah, there's a certain demographic that, that goes to Ross and, and also there are <laughs> other brands. But I'll, Well, look, it's like, um, you know, I remember I was involved with the Dollar General IPO back in, what was it, 2009 or 10 or whatever it was. And I, I kind of laughed at the business model until you started seeing the economics behind it. And the loyalty of the shoppers in the locations that those stores existed and you know, like, wait a minute, there really aren't any other options, options to shop it. And most importantly, when it comes to retail, the most important thing you got to think of is that the online competition just isn't there. I mean, what are you going to do for like, or, or Ross is a good example. You know, a lot of those stores have discount clothes and whatnot. I mean, that's a really hard thing to compete against in the online world. So they are somewhat protected.
0: So on our previous episode, we were talking about alternative investments and whether or not they were appropriate for the average investor. And our guest made a comment that the information out there is available to everybody. However, those investments are not appropriate for the average investor because the average investor isn't going to do the research. When I look at this list, I feel sort of the same thing, right? This information is out there. Anybody can, can get this. Anybody can look through this and, you know, do their best to pick out what they think are winners and to try to diversify those picks. But the average person isn't doing that. So do you think it makes more sense? And I realize this probably is a a question that can, um, spur a much longer conversation probably an entire episode, but do you think that it makes more sense for the average investor? To pick up an index fund, set it and forget it, or to work with a wealth manager and asset manager to try to find a model that they can set and forget designed specifically for them, or a combination of the two?
2: Well, I'm going to use the answer I use all the time in this business. It depends. I would say that if you're 25, 30, 35, I don't know, however, years old, and you've got many decades where you don't have a lot of liabilities and responsibilities you have to think of today buy an index fund. I mean, look, you don't need us. You just don't. Buy an index fund, let it compound over time, and you're going to you're going to do fine. Unless something really weird happens, you're going to you should do fine. It gets a little bit different story if you've got special circumstances. Let's say you sell a business at 30, 32 years old and you've got a lot of money. That that's a unique situation. Uh, let's say you're trying to now save for three or four kids in college funds or you know, you're going into retirement where You need an actual plan it's a little bit more difficult to say i'm just going to go out and buy an s p 500 index fund because you could have a period of you know five to seven or even 10 years where you're not going to earn anything like we saw in the 2000s it definitely does depend on your situation but i think the important thing here to realize is that no matter what situation you're in what i don't recommend doing is trying to go out and pick stocks on your own one and then two Trying to hold or trying to concentrate too heavily in any one specific holding,
1: I think I agree with you Tino. I think if you have time on your side, in the next one makes a lot of sense. But yeah, that works because you have time to recover if the market was flat for a while or, or something funky happens. You know, whereas somebody like myself, you know, nearing what most people would call a retirement age, you know, if I if I went in if I went into something and you know we had another 2008 or something, you know, I don't I don't have the advantage of of waiting 10 years for the market to recover. So I think for somebody like me, I'd feel much more comfortable dealing with someone that has their finger on the pulse of what's going on rather than sticking it into a, an index fund and just, you know, sitting
2: and waiting. But the thing here is that it's such easy advice, but nobody's going to do it or very few people do it rather. My brother-in-law is in his late 20s. Uh, he's got a really good job, makes good money for his age. And he was asking me like a year and a half ago, he started to have a little bit of excess money in his bank account. I was like, what should I do with it? I told him exactly what I just told everybody here. Buy an S&P 500 index. Actually, I told him buy a NASDAQ and so the Qs. And if don't ever look at it, and if you sell it, I'm not going to talk to you and just wait. And he's a smart guy. We're talking about a Fulbright scholar, very, very bright guy, works for a good company, very financially savvy. He lasted almost almost four months before he had the <laughs> urge to trade it. It's just, hard. it's a hard thing to do. It always comes back to that in action. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to ask one more,
0: more controversial question with the meteoric volatility of crypto does it not make more sense especially because of entry price as well to just blast the crypto market and buy a little piece of every possible crypto you can find and sit and wait because what we've seen in the past you know about every two years you see this outrageous growth that sticks around for a few months you see all of these new millionaires, and in some cases, billionaires being created. And then a few months later, you see them all wiped out again because they held too long. But that's beside the point.
1: It seems to me it's the same principle of buying an index fund, right? You got, you're going to have a whole lot of losers, but the winners are going to, they're going to so outperform the losers that it seems like the only logical way to do it if you're going to bet on crypto.
0: But I've never seen a, an equity in the market increase by two, 3,000% over the course of a few months.
1: Tino hates this question. I could tell by the look on his face. I know. That's why I said it was a little (laughs) controversial. It is a tough question. It is is tough. Because it's uh, so
0: hard to feel that the crypto market is legitimate. I I feel like it's hard to accept it as the legitimate source of investment. But the reality is it's here to stay. And when you compare it, I mean, it's, it's attractive.
2: Look, I think conceptually, there's nothing wrong with the idea. You say, okay, let's dollar cost average. You you know, once a month or once a quarter, you take a a chunk of your money and you put, I'm making these numbers up. You put 80% into, you know, the NASDAQ or S&P, whatever you want. And then 20%, let's put it into crypto and just dollar cost average and just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that strategy. So I agree with you, Remy. Crypto is here to stay for all intents and purposes. But at the same time, remember what you're investing in. Crypto is not going to compound returns over time. It's not going to pay dividends. It's not going to do a lot of the things that an investment does. Crypto is not an investment. It is an asset. An asset and an investment are two very different things. So it's okay to hold it. Just be aware of what you're holding. The second phase of this question though is an interesting one you bring up is that, well, how would you invest in crypto? The problem with crypto, and and, you know know better than I do, is that they, I mean, these coins are, are created daily almost. Like new coins, new code bases. It's it, and, and, and one may push back as like, well, yeah, a company's IPO every day, but there's a difference between these two. You can't value these new ones that are being launched. They You have celebrities going out and hyping them on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it may be. They're shooting up in value because people get excited about them. I think that there's, there's a certain... And I, I'm not the person to answer this question. I feel like you need to have a little bit more of a strategic approach to crypto. Yes, you need to be diversified, but some of these like niche esoteric ones that are showing up out of nowhere, I don't know how you even value those. I don't know how you would be able to include them. And and frankly, even trading them, I think, is also another challenge that I think most of the average investor would have a hard time with.
0: I think to your point, Tina, I don't think you can value them, right? It's not like a a company that IPOs and you can look at the fundamentals and see, you know, make an an intelligent, educated guess. You, You can't do that with these. In many cases, there's literally nothing backing them. But You can also buy them for 0.00001% of a penny, right? So, you know, you buy a hundred of them for 10 cents. Next thing you know, you might have a couple hundred thousand dollars on your hands. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties, and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there could be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.